You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Though evangelicals in the 60s and 70s were no fans of the sexual revolution, it did mean that they had to start talking about sex. Since then, the evangelical world has produced many books on marriage and sex that all claim to create great relationships for Christian married couples. These books are frequently recommended by pastors and counselors and touted as remedies for all marital ills, but have their promises actually been fulfilled in the lives of readers? Award-winning author, blogger, podcaster, and speaker, Sheila Ray Gregoire, set out to answer that question, and the results of her research became her new book, The Great Sex Rescue. I'm Katie Grubbs, and Sheila joins me today on Christian Humanist Profiles to discuss her discovery that many of these books have proven harmful, not helpful, for Christian couples. Content warning. Listeners, you're going to want to listen to this interview without the kids, as this will be a frank discussion of a mature topic. How are you, Sheila? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Katie. I am thrilled to talk about The Great Sex Rescue, um, and I want to jump right in um, with kind of getting into a little bit of the exigency for this book. You've been writing about Christian women's sex lives for many years, and so what prompted you to write this particular book at this particular time? All right, well, let me give you a bit of a background. So I started in the mommy blog sphere 2008, let's say, you know, when all the mommy blogs were, were big and I was talking housework and parenting and organization and all that stuff. And my blog wasn't really going very far, um, but I found the more I talked about sex, the more my traffic grew. So, you know, people like talking about sex, <laughs> I guess. And then in 2012, my first big sex book was out, The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex with Zondervan. And over the next few years, I, I had a bunch of other books. I, I created some courses on how to make sex good. Um, I had 31 days to great sex. So I was I was constantly writing about marriage and sex. But in January of 2019, it was a Friday afternoon. I had a migraine. I didn't want to work. Um, and I was trying to procrastinate. And I was on Twitter. And a bunch of women were talking about how they need respect, not just love. And they were referring to a book by Emerson Egrich, Love and Respect, which is the second best-selling marriage book in the evangelical church. And it occurred to me, yeah, I kind of need respect, too. And I realized I'd never read that, that book, but it was upstairs in my cupboard. So I went and got it. Um, and being the sex person I am, I turned to just the sex chapter. And it's only about 10 pages long. And I read this thing, and it was as if a nuclear bomb went off in my living room because I never realized what other evangelical books were teaching about sex because I just had never read them. I know this sounds really weird, but I'd been in this world for years, but I was always afraid of plagiarizing. So I just never read this stuff. So I'm looking at love and respect. And he says things like, if your husband is typical, he has a need that you don't have. So sex is a man's need, not a woman's need. Um, he has a need for physical release. Well, she needs emotional release, whatever that means. So his need is for ejaculation. It's not about intimacy. He doesn't even talk about intimacy. Um, he never once calls it making love in the book. It's always just physical release. Like that's the most common way that he talks about sex as a husband's physical release. Um, if a husband doesn't get physical release, he'll come under satanic attack and he could have an affair. And most affairs are caused by women not having sex. And you need to understand his struggle with lust. And that was it. And I was like, I mean, that's just mind blowing. I, I couldn't believe it because I haven't read it yet. I haven't read that book yet either. And I am thinking, do I need to kind of hate read it now just to see what's <laughs> there? I, I, but yeah, with the things that you were quoting in the book um, kind of blew my mind. I know. <laughs> like, like, this is unbelievable. 
isn't it? And so I'm reading this thing and I'm thinking, this cannot be what we're teaching women about sex because there was not a single word in that chapter about how women can feel pleasure and should feel pleasure. Like there wasn't anything about that. In fact, it was just, why would you deprive him of something which takes such a short amount of time and makes him so happy? Um, so, you know, bragging about how short it is, is not really indicative that you understand women's pleasure. So it was just very strange, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I'm thinking like, this cannot be what we're teaching. And over the next few months, we looked at a bunch of other evangelical books and we realized this is a problem. Uh, we, we talked about love and respect a lot on the blog. We started hearing from hundreds of women, literally hundreds, who said that the book enabled abuse in their marriage. And we um, we compiled a report of all of those emails, sent it to Focus on the Family, which co-publishes it and, and promotes it. And they ignored our report. And I, this really changed the whole direction of my ministry, because up until then, I had just been teaching how to have good sex. And I realized then that that wasn't enough. We had to actually deal with the rotten foundation that we have caused by a lot of faulty teaching in the church. And so we decided that they may be able to ignore a couple of hundred women, but can they ignore thousands? And so we thought we're just going to go big or go home. And we did the largest survey of Christian women's marital and sexual satisfaction that's ever been done. About 20,000 women, um, just over 20,000. It was at least 130 questions. Some people had more. And, uh, and we compiled that into the Great Sex Rescue. When it's such a huge project, and um, understandably, uh, unlike your other books, this book was a collaborative effort, um, and I'm not surprised by that given the, the large undertaking. So can you just tell us a little bit about who your co-authors are and what did each of you three bring to the table when crafting this study? Yes, yeah, so Joanna Sawatsky, she's the funniest one. Um, she moved, I actually got her husband a job. She's from Philadelphia or Pittsburgh. Um, her husband's from uh, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and I'm in Ontario. And her husband was a lawyer, training to be a lawyer, and he needed a placement. And I arranged for them to get a placement in my hometown. So they moved from Saskatchewan to my hometown in southeastern Ontario, and they were having babies. And she was just looking to do a little bit of work while she was at home. So she was working for me on the blog a bit, but she is a, a trained statistician and epidemiologist. She has um, master's degrees, like this is what she does is statistics. And so I have this very highly qualified woman who I'm just friends with, who's working with me. And then my daughter, who is trained in psychometrics, which is survey development, was working for me. And she's also a really good writer. Uh, and so the three of us did this together. Um, Rebecca wrote the survey with Joanna, but Rebecca was the primary driver of that. Um, Joanna ran all the numbers, Rebecca ran the focus groups, and then I wrote the first draft and Rebecca and I edited it together. And I like to say that other than two of the funny lines, all the funny snarky things are Rebecca's. <laughs> I got two of them, but the rest are hers. <laughs> That's amazing. So did, do you feel like that um, this was something that um, needed multiple voices to, to express it because of all the multiplicity of women's experiences that were part of it? Um, I don't think it was that as much as it was just skill sets. There's no way I could have done the stats for this. Like, you know, 20,000, we were using major stats programs. Joanna is now 
she's created like, I don't know, 1600 lines of code for this thing so that we can get it into academic peer reviewed journals. I don't even understand what she does. So <laughs> like, there's no way I could have done the numbers. And, and then um, Rebecca is just really good at, at survey development. And I, I, that's just not my skill set either. And given the project that we were undertaking, that was part of what we wanted to do because we feel like a lot of the problems in the church with the way we talk about marriage and sex is that we've just had people writing from their own personal experience. And we didn't want that. We wanted this to actually be research based and research based to the point where it's to an academic level. And and now that the book's been out for a while, we're we're changing our focus a little bit and we are working at peer review. So we're not working on a number of different articles to get in peer reviewed journals. Um and we just want to call the church to more and raise the bar because I think one of the reasons that we've had such lousy advice is that people haven't been looking at research. When I, you know, in chapter one, you, you kind of asked to me, at least in the beginning, felt like the foundational question, which is there's been all these marriage books that have been written in sex books in the evangelical world, but nobody seems to have asked the question if any of these things actually work. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, because like you said, a lot of it is, seems to be based on personal experience and like nobody goes back seemingly to check and see if it works. So wh- why do you think nobody's asking this question of do these methods even work? Well, you know, we, we actually come back to that question in the last chapter. Um, and I actually wonder if the teachings do work, but for a bad goal, because mm-hmm. what okay. we ended up doing was we identified several key evangelical teachings that make sex and marriage worse for women. And here's how we did that. So we, first of all, we asked women to rate their marriage. So we gave them a whole bunch of, of previously validated survey questions on, you know, rating your marriage and then rating your sex life. And then after they had done all that, we then presented them with a whole bunch of different evangelical teachings around sex and marriage and asked if they had ever been taught it and if they ever had ever believed it at two different times in their lives. Um, so then we were able to compare people who did believe it or people who didn't believe it with their marital and sexual satisfaction. So it's, it, we weren't saying, did this teaching harm you? <laughs> we just simply looked at if people believed it, what was the effect of that on their marital and sexual satisfaction? And we identified four big teachings that were really rotten, that that made women's orgasm rates go down, arousal rates go down, marital satisfaction go down, sexual pain go up, etc. But here's what's interesting. I think three out of the four beliefs that we found were harmful did increase frequency, So they made sex lousy for women and they made their marriages worse, but they did make sure that women gave their husbands intercourse more frequently. And I sometimes wonder in my cynical self (laughs) if that is really the goal of a lot of these books is just making sure that men get physical release, exactly what Emerson Egrich is talking about, and completely ignoring the point of sex in the Bible. You know, that's a great point. And I because I was I was thinking when I was reading the book, too, that if you are if anybody did go back later who wrote any of these books and were attempting to figure out if, you know, if if the methods were working, if all they did was ask how much how often are you having sex? Like you said, they might think it is working. Right. Or mm-hmm. if only the man was asked, hey, how's this working out for you? You know, um, then you might get a very different picture than if you asked. A woman. Um, so yeah, I, I, it was, um, 
that was that was really interesting to me too because I I haven't I have not read I think I've only read one Christian marriage book. Um, my husband and I always joke mm-hmm. that we're not really book people. Um, that kind of book, you know, we don't we don't tend to um, we we are both first born academics, um, and so we tend to think mm-hmm. we can just take the Bible and we're just going to look at the Bible and we're good. Like we don't need a lot of guidance, um, and it, which is stupid. Everybody needs guidance, but um, that means that we're not the kind of people who regularly seek out marriage books, right? Um, but I, the only one I have read is, um, I was, I'm a child of Gen Xers, I guess. My parents were young married people in the early 80s. And so they gave me their copy of The Act of Marriage when yes. we were engaged, <laughs> which you also mentioned in the book. Um, and I remember, and I, David and I read it together because I thought it was hilarious. Like, we're, we, you know, I mean, because, I think because it was their copy, it was very, very old. It had, you know, old timey cover. Um, and so we were kind of looking at it as like a, a curiosity in some ways or, or a kind of a, a, a more old fashioned take without necessarily realizing that people are still using that book all the time. It's not. Yeah, it's not a relic. Like, um, And I don't know that I ever realized that till I was looking through your book and seeing, you know, that you guys were still you guys were still including it because people still read it all the time. Um, mm-hmm. But I remembered some of the anecdotes that you mentioned in your book. I do remember noticing in that book and being incredibly disturbed by and kind of thinking, well, it's probably just this one book you know, and we, we're not going to pay attention to this one book, right, without necessarily realizing the breadth of the problem, like you said, because I haven't read all of them, you know. Um, yeah, uh, wow. Um, well, do you think, so um, who do you, who would you say needs this book the most? Um, and and are there any reasons that, that that audience might be resistant to the message you guys are trying to put across in the book? Well, I sort of see it as two different audiences. The first is couples any couple who has grown up in the evangelical church, like if you've grown up in the evangelical church, you need to read this because you probably have been taught a lot of these messages and believe them without even realizing it. Um, and so if she struggles with desire, if she, if she struggles with orgasm, um, any of those things, I really think that this book can help. And that's the feedback that we're getting is it really is setting people free. They feel so validated, et cetera. The other big group that I hope reads it is pastors because it's pastors who are often recommending all these problematic books. And if we can help pastors to identify um, when teachings are harmful, then maybe this stuff won't get propagated anymore. So, and, and we are hearing from a lot of pastors and counselors who are using it, which makes me so excited because that's what I want is for this negative messaging to stop so that we can start adding the healthy stuff that actually does um, help people. That's awesome that because um, I, I, I think that um, and you, you mentioned and I think at the very end of the book that that was one of the, the, the targeted you know, groups that you guys were the most trying to, to get to, because I think you're right. Sometimes I think, um, you know, ministers don't always have time to sit down and talk one-on-one with you or, you know, or maybe you're doing your premarital counseling and maybe they have that scheduled time, but that's it. And so they might just recommend a book as a way to give you further help. But if they haven't looked at it or mm-hmm. read it in detail, or if, you know, if you're a male pastor, if you have read it, but uh, no woman of your acquaintance, your wife or a friend has read it and given her take on the book, how it makes her feel, yeah. then you might not have any idea that it's causing trouble, you know, um, particularly because I think it's, it's, I don't know, I don't know if this is something that you've seen, but as humans, I feel like we tend to assume it's just us, you know, yes. and so I feel like if someone read a book, if a, a couple read a book and it wasn't working for them or if it was causing problems, their first thought might not be this book is probably terrible. Instead, their first thought might be something's wrong with us. 
It's just yes. us. We're, we're the problem, you know? Um, so yeah, it is. It's, I mean, and, and that's one of the things I liked about the kind of sheer volume that you guys had of people that you talked to and of data, because it sh- really shows you the reader how many people struggle, that it's not mm-hmm. just you. It's not just us. It's so many other people, which you, and I, let me go back for a second. You mentioned before the big, big survey and focus groups. Um, what were the other kinds of research you guys did? Because I know you said in the book there were four types of research. What were the yes. four? So, yes. So we did. We also did a huge literature review. So we looked at all the academic peer reviewed articles. This was another thing that Rebecca did um, to see what they said about what leads to healthy sexuality. What are good health? What are good sexual outcomes? Um, what leads to those good outcomes? What are how how are women faring in the broader society in terms of sexual outcomes, et cetera. So we looked at all the literature review. And then from that, once we had our um, data from our survey, and so we knew which teachings were harmful, and we had our data from all the peer-reviewed journals, we created a 12-point rubric of healthy sexuality, so 12 markers of healthy sexuality teaching, um, and then rated each of the 12 from zero to four, and then we applied that rubric to our, our evangelical bestsellers. We looked at the top 10 marriage bestsellers, and then we looked at six iconic sex bestsellers. Um, three of the marriage ones just didn't talk about sex, so we excluded them. So we had 13 Christian books uh, in total, and then one secular book as a control book, and we applied our rubric to those. I really enjoyed so much the 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 method the the kind of um because I'm a I'm a kind of a logistics person or I, I enjoy things to be organized and orderly so I really appreciated <laughs> um, that approach in part because so many of these marriage books are written um, in a way that is very based in personal experience um, often I mean in some cases by couples married pairs you know um, like mm-hmm. the Keller book or like Active Marriage and so um, if you know, if you're kind of writing out of your own experience and you're not taking into account things like research, um, you know, then and, and and things are going awry. It seems clear to me that, um, you know, taking a more methodical, you know, kind of scientific mm-hmm. approach might be the right antidote for that. Yeah, well, can I give you an example Absolutely. of that? Yeah. OK, so here here was actually one of the saddest anecdotes that I found as we were looking at it. Not one of the worst. There were many worse ones. Like we had many anecdotes of marital rape and don't even get me started on Aunt Matilda. I can we can talk about that one okay. in a minute if you want. <laughs> okay. But um, the meaning of marriage by Tim Keller scored okay on our rubric I think it was in the 30s like I think it was about 30 out of 48 so that was the neutral category it didn't help but it didn't harm the vast majority of our resources scored in the harmful category so so Tim Keller did better than most Um, but even so he had this one anecdote where he was saying that early in their marriage if after sex he asked Kathy how it was and she said well it just hurt he would be devastated and she would be too and so they decided that working towards her orgasm was too stressful um and it was just causing everyone a great amount of consternation and so instead they would each focus on what they could give rather than what they could get now (laughs) that tells us so many things first of all she said it just hurt and Keller never commented on that. Yeah. Um, I, vaginismus is a sexual dysfunction disorder where the muscles of the vaginal wall contract, so they get really tight, and she can't relax them. And it makes penetration very difficult, if not impossible. 
Vaginismus affects like 22% of Christian women. It is way more common than erectile dysfunction for couples under the age of 45. And yet we all know the words erectile dysfunction. Very few of us know vaginismus. But we've known for 50 or 60 years that vaginismus affects Christian women, evangelical women, at twice the rate of the general population. So this is our problem. And he left that hanging there and never said anything about vaginismus. That also tells us, like, if I asked her afterwards how it was and she said it just hurt, we would be devastated. So that means they're not communicating during sex. Like, (laughs) he's doing stuff to her. They're not communicating. And, you know, what our research showed and what peer-reviewed research shows is that one of the best predictors of female orgasm is her being able to speak up in the moment. And so she doesn't feel like she can speak up in the moment. And, and again, he didn't say anything about how that would have been a good thing to change. Instead, he said, we just decided to stop working towards her orgasm. Um, because that was too stressful. And we'd concentrate on what we could give. And so I'm wondering what exactly he was giving to her. Yeah. Yeah, that, <laughs> you know? that makes sense. You know, now, yeah. And, and I do want to say, like, if, if you're a woman who reaches orgasm, let's say 60% of the time, you know, but sometimes you start and you just know you're not going to get there and you just want to give a gift, that probably is pretty good advice. But if you're someone who has never reached orgasm and even married for 12 years and you read this book, what is that going to tell you? You know, that I'm being selfish if I want any pleasure. And so that's just an example of how going with your own um, experience rather than listening to research is not helpful (laughs) when you're talking to couples. Absolutely. Well, and and it um, it also kind of gives a uh, it, it also is a problem, too, because even though it's clear in that case that they're writing from their own personal experience, because the book is being written by a person of importance, a person of authority, right? Someone that, you know, the reader is inclined to respect because they bought, they've, you know, they bought the book. They're going to give even more weight to that person's, you know, what they're saying than, than they would to a friend, you know, or mm-hmm. a family member. And so that's, um, and, and it also to me shows too that, um, and I think all of the, all of the books show when I was reading, um, I think you did, you guys did a good job with this of saying that, Pro- almost certainly these people writing these books did not set out to hurt anyone or to cause problems, but you, but it's clear that best intentions are no, you know, they're not going to prevent harm if the actual, you know, teaching is not good. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You can have the best of intentions and not, uh, and not, it not go well. And which, I mean, that, that's a great segue into the next question I was going to ask, which is that um, I know parts of this book are really focused on application, especially the the kind of explore together sections at the at the end of each chapter. But at the root, to me, you guys are addressing issues of really bad exegesis, bad theology of marriage, as presented in some of these mm-hmm. harmful books. So, what are some of the key scripture texts that these books are using, to, and what teachings are they trying to support with them? <laughs> They're not like. <laughs> I think the only scripture text that almost every book uses is 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5. Now they misuse that text, um, but it's they don't even look at so many of the broader verses about sex that are in the Bible. And they miss out on the real purpose of sex because they do what Emerson Eckridge does and reduce it to simply physical release. It's it's a need that a man has, and that's how it's talked about. So 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5, for those who, who may not remember, um, these verses are burned into my brain. But <laughs> uh, it, it says that um, 
the husband must fulfill his marital duties to his wife and likewise the wife to the husband and the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to the husband and the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to the wife. And then it says, do not deprive each other um, except by mutual consent and for a time uh, that you may devote yourselves to prayer and fasting, but then come together again so that you won't be tempted by your lack of self-control. Now, Paul was writing that not to tell people that they should get sex whenever they want. He was writing it to address a very specific issue in the Corinthian church, which was that people were vowing celibacy even when they were married. <laughs> yeah. And, the, you know, the point of 1 Corinthians 7 is, you know, remain in the state that you are. Like, if you're married, don't don't leave the person you're married to. Like, celibacy is not something that makes you holier. Um, and he was trying to say, look, you don't need to stay celibate because there was there was a great um, uh, in feeling that the flesh is bad and the spirit is good. And all of that was going through the Corinthian church. And so that's what Paul was was addressing. And in those times the husband had complete authority over the wife's body to the point that he could kill her if he wanted and he wouldn't be charged with murder. And in the middle of that, Paul says, in the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to the wife. So he gives he gives her the same rights, not that they should murder each other, but that the husband does not have any rights over the wife that the wife does not also have over the husband. Like that was a revolutionary statement. Yeah. And sure. so... You know, to weaponize these verses to say that women need to be giving intercourse to their husbands. Well, first of all, that's such a misunderstanding of sex. Um, and this is really my bigger issue is like when you only look at that verse and you forget everything else, you miss out on what sex is supposed to be. Because like Genesis four, there's this funny verse with this weird Hebrew word, you know, that we laugh when we're kids and we read it like Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived unto them a son. And we think God is embarrassed of saying sex. Right. But if you look at that Hebrew word to know, it's the same word that David uses in the Psalms when he says, search me and know me. Oh, God, it's this deep intimacy, this deep longing to be connected. And God used that word for a reason to say that that sex is intimate you know, it's about both of you knowing each other. It's a deep knowing. Um, it's also pleasurable. All of Song of Songs is about how pleasurable sex is. And then it's really mutual from 1 Corinthians 7. So we have this picture of activity which is mutual, intimate, and pleasurable for both. And yet those verses have been used to tell women that you need to give your husband's intercourse no matter what. And honey... If you're giving him one-sided intercourse where you feel nothing, you are already being deprived and those verses don't even apply. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's totally true. I, and I was thinking, I kept, when I was reading so many of the parts of the book where you guys were quoting from, from um, books using that particular text, I kept thinking about uh, in First Peter where he says, live with your wife in an understanding manner. Like that, I kept thinking, you know, you could go to First Peter to find why this is a bad interpretation. Because if you're supposed to live with your wife in an understanding manner, this is not, that's not um, saying that she can never say no unless you've agreed to fast and pray uh, is not living with your wife in an understanding manner. Not even a little bit. Um, thank you. That's, yeah. a, that's a great. And then, I mean, and then you have, and then like, here's another example. Like sheet music tells women that during your period, you need to give him oral sex or a hand job so that he isn't tempted to watch porn. Or later during the postpartum phase, Kevin Lehman and sheet music, um, or if you're just not feeling well, 
you can give him a hand job. Um, so it's really dehumanizing, <laughs> to say the least. And it's not understanding the point of so many verses in the New Testament, which say that women are not responsible for um, helping men get over sexual sin. Like, over and over again, it tells people who lust to put lust to death. It doesn't say, hey, if you lust, make sure your spouse is is managing all of your set needs for sexual release. It doesn't say that. It says put lust to death. And yet our Christian resources are putting that on women. Yeah. And I, I kept thinking, too, when I was reading those parts, too, that if the cure, you know, if the cure for something like porn addiction, like some of these books say, is for, you know, for the wives to just make sure they're giving their husbands lots of sex. Well, what, you know, what hope is there for any single man in that situation <laughs> who has a Christian sexual ethic and is therefore not sexually active because he's not married? I, you know, it's just if that's if that's the cure, that doesn't make any sense because it's way too exclusive. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I had never encountered any of that before, um, before reading this book. And that was one, that was really, really eye opening um, that 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 this is something that's being said is, is kind of helpful. Um, in that situation, um, and which in that actually, that's another good kind of segue. So I know you, you, you guys spend the majority of the book kind of revealing the harm done to women by these sexual teachings because you were surveying women. But I also really appreciated that you talked about the harm that's done to men. Um, so what are some of the ways that men are being hurt by these things, not just women? I think men have been, um, I think men have had so much shame put on them that they were never supposed to feel. And men are made to feel like they just are not as holy or Christian as women are. Uh, like every man's battle, when it talks about the problem of male sexual sin, it actually has a chapter called this, um, just by being male. Like we got there just by being male. Um, in a companion book, to every man's battle called every heart restored it says men don't naturally have that christian view of sex so men are made to have a view of sex that objectifies and so the goal of men in this mindset is instead of objectifying every woman you learn to objectify just one woman for your entire life because male sexuality is about objectifying women. And that is just so not true. And it's such a low view of men. But I, I think it comes from this idea where sexual attraction is equated with lust. And so from the time guys are like 12, 13, 14 years old, they're starting to go through puberty and they're told, oh, you're going to you're going to find women so alluring and women are trying to control you with their bodies and they're going to show off their bodies to try to control you. And guys are made hyper vigilant to avoid um, seeing women or getting turned on by women. And Jesus doesn't say whoever notices a woman and has a nice chest has already committed adultery. Like Jesus says, whoever looks at a woman with lust, it's not whoever sees a woman. It's not whoever notices a woman. It's not even whoever looks at a woman. It's whoever looks with lust. Um, and so there isn't anything wrong with seeing a woman, noticing she's beautiful, even having a biological reaction to that. But then you can go on with your day and think nothing more of it. Like it doesn't need to control you. But because these books see everything as like, well, if you see her, you're going to be tempted to lust and then you're going to lust. Like it, it's like you can't get off that moving sidewalk. 
And so you need to not get on it at all, which is where the whole bouncing your eyes things come in, um, which is what that's the phrase that every man's battle tells men to do. So if you see a woman, you're supposed to bounce your eyes away from her so that you won't be tempted to lust. And the problem with that is that it still treats women like sexual objects. It still completely objectifies women. Jesus did not refuse to look at women. Jesus chose to truly see women. And we need to believe that men are capable of more. Absolutely. I, to me, some of the some some of the really sad parts in the book too is when you you guys were talking about men who, you know, had um were just so demoralized by these teachings growing up that they felt defeated before they ever started to try to resume or to try to assume an adult relationship, begin an adult, you know, sexual relationship, or also the guys who were, you know, whose wives had absorbed teachings about things like obligation sex and, you know, were married for 20 years with no idea that she was, that she thought that this was something she had to do. Like, cause she never mm-hmm. communicated, which that's like a communication again, like you talked about before. You know, I read one of those pages to my husband and he was just crestfallen. I mean, he just couldn't believe it, you know? Um, and it, it's such a, um, it's just, it's it's the, the harm that's done on both sides, particularly if, if both people have been taught these things. I think sometimes it's, you know, um, a little bit different if one person didn't absorb these things growing up, um, because then maybe there's, you know, at least one side in the marriage, there's a slightly more, um, a freer like, uh, idea. But I, I tell you what though, when I finished this book, I felt very grateful that I somehow, despite growing up evangelical managed mm-hmm. to not, ab- to, to absorb very few of these ideas. Um, which is, you know, I don't know why. Um, I think part of that is because, um, my, uh, my parents didn't necessarily, um, they were fine with us kind of reading things. They, we, we, they didn't push a lot of literature about things like relationships on us. You know, they, they talked to us a lot about relationships, about their relationship, but, um, they weren't kind of handing us lots of these books to read, you know? Um, and so Mm -hmm. somehow mercifully (laughs) I managed to, um, to make it through without kind of, without too many harmful ideas. Um, well, I was thinking when you were talking about it, it's, it's a kind of a, a low view of men, presented in these books, almost as if they're somehow more fallen than we are, which is a weird reversal, right, of earlier church history where men were, where women were looked at as kind of, you know, categorically weaker because of Eve, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like this weird reversal so that, you know, instead the man is seen as just kind of categorically weaker, at least in this area. Um, So one of my favorite parts of the whole book was at the very end in chapter 13, when you kind of broke down, I mean, like bullet pointed uh, the, the expectations that these books have for men versus for women. Um, and so can you talk about that for just a minute for our listeners? Because how are those different and what is the effect that that has had? Yeah, I should I should get my book out and read them. Hold on a second. <laughs> um, uh, it, it was really I, I, I drew up this list myself after reading all of the the other books um, because I was very I was very overwhelmed reading them on all the things that women had to do and yet men were not asked to do the same thing so here's an example okay um, only three books out of the 13 asked men to do all four of these things only three of them stay faithful to your wife without any caveats make sex pleasurable for her don't insist on sex when your wife is physically or emotionally unwell and seek consent, meaning don't rape her. 
and don't coerce her. Only, okay, only three out of our 13 books asked all four things of men. And those are not big things to ask. <laughs> you know, stay faithful, don't rape her. <laughs> like, those are pretty basic things, okay? Yeah. But those those same 13 books, um, uh, five of them asked all of these Five of them asked all of these of women, and most of them asked at least five of these seven things. Have intercourse as frequently as your husband wants, even if he is watching porn or has a lust problem. Understand that without intercourse, your husband is more likely to have an affair, and if he does, it's partly your fault. Help him reach climax in some other way when you're on your period, postpartum, not sleeping, or during any other problem you may face. Um, Prevent weight gain to stay attractive. Uh, let your husband feel like he is a good lover without any caveat that he should actually be a good lover and initiate intercourse and be enthusiastic. So it's she's a, asked to do all so of many, those things. Sorry, you go ahead, Sheila. Oh, no, like she's asked to do all of those things. And he's just and, and all he he's not even asked to stay faithful. Like, this is just amazing to me. <laughs> I mean, it really, it, it, it's, it's like you said, it's, it's low expectations. It's, it, and, and I feel like if I was a man and I was reading this, I would feel very insulted. I, <laughs> that, that, that more than that is not expected of me. Yeah. And I don't think, I think what most men don't realize is what women are being taught. Because I, I read one stat that like 74% of um, nonfiction books like relationship books are read by women. And I would assume that Christian ones, they're even higher because so many women read them in women's Bible studies. So, you know, you're probably looking at 80% of these books are read by women. So most men don't hear these messages and they're not necessarily taught from the pulpit. Like when we asked women, were you ever taught these particular teachings, you know, have sex so he won't watch porn. Um, Boys are going to push your sexual boundaries. Uh, all men struggle with lust. When we ask them, were you taught those things? The vast majority who said that they were also said they weren't taught them from the pulpit. They were taught them through other ministries like Focus on the Family or through books um, or through women's Bible studies. And so they're not hearing it from pastors. And that means that a lot of men aren't hearing this stuff at all, but it's seriously impacting women's view of sex. You know, that's a really that's a really good distinction, um, because I think so often I've noticed in church that um, it's it's a lot more common for there to be a topical study for women than a topical study for men. Um, And so often they are marriage or, you know, kind of family based. um, So that that makes sense. Well, um, because of all just all this bad stuff, you know, it's it's so difficult just to read a lot of the stories from real women that you guys included in the book, because so many of these experiences are so traumatic. And I know you've been doing this for such a long time. So how do you how do you kind of maintain your morale and, and your sense of purpose in the face of all these sad stories? To be honest, it's been really, really hard. Like this has been a hard year and it's not just COVID. I mean, that's made it worse, but <laughs> It's been overwhelming when we actually looked at the bestsellers and saw how toxic a lot of them were and then got an idea of how big a problem marital rape is um, from so many women who answered our surveys and who did our focus groups and just 
saw how rape was downplayed in our books and consent was never talked about. Consent was the one word that was not in any of our Christian books, um, although it was featured prominently in our secular control book. Um, and that's really difficult to take, you know, and and then also just to see the response of the evangelical world to our book. That's been difficult. Um, focus on the family still is ignoring us. Uh, a lot, a, a number of the authors have spoken out against um, me or threatened to sue us. Uh, wow. Instead of instead of honestly looking at maybe we did some harm. And, and maybe we need to make this right. The good news and what does keep me going is just, I mean, just for fun, people listening, go to Amazon and read the reviews because you'll read review after review after review of women saying, oh, my gosh, this changed my life. I feel like a new person. And that's what I do every morning now is I just check the new reviews because it <laughs> it just helps me start my day on a better note than if I go to my emails first and get all the emails from women who are having problems, <laughs> you know. Um, but we just we really have been have feel like this book is setting so many people free Um and hearing back from them has just been incredible. And that, that makes it feel worth it, even if the powers that be won't listen. Um, I, I, when I was getting ready for the interview, I read the reviews on Amazon because I thought it would help me to kind of structure my questions, too, to see what people were saying. And it was it was so lovely to read all of the all the five star reviews and see all the people who kind of, you know, things were clicking for them for the first time or um, and, and that was really that was really amazing. Um, and I had I had a good laugh over your one star reviews. She lived. Oh, yeah. We're just <laughs> we're hilarious. They're just um, a bunch of angry feminists. Yes. Over yes. Yes. Um, well, so uh, as you guys are kind of coming off of the great sex rescue, what's your next project? What are you working on? Uh, well, I have two things. So in February, um, my next book, The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex is coming out as well as a completely revised Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex is the 10th anniversary this February. So um, we'll have we'll have matching books coming out at the same time. And The Good Guy's Guide is based on our survey of guys that that information is not in The Great Sex Rescue, but pretty interesting stuff about lust in there and how proving our thesis that guys really do not struggle with lust. They struggle with sexual attraction, which is not a sin, but they're made to feel like it's a sin. And so guys are feeling a lot of shame that they don't need to be feeling. So that that's coming out in February. And then right now we're writing um, a book, a mother or daughter book. So a help for mothers as they want to raise girls to not internalize these messages and to have healthy messages instead. I, I can't wait for that, for the latter. Um, my, my oldest is, uh, she's nine. So we're kind of approaching the time when we're going to maybe, you know, start talking to her a little bit more about adult relationships. And um, so that's going to be, I'm sure, going to be a big help. Um, well, is there anything else before we, before we finish, is there anything else that you would like to say to our listeners or anything else about the book that you would like um, them to know before we close? I just, I just pray that it gets in the hand of every pastor and counselor and that we really can change the conversation about sex in the evangelical world. I don't think it's too late. I think this is a conversation that people are ready for. And it's time that we start looking at healthy materials. So, yeah, pick up the Great Sex Rescue. Check out our, our marriage podcast, the Bear Marriage Podcast, every Thursday. And you 
can find me at my blog at tolovehonorandvacuum.com too. All our courses are there. All our books are there. And I blog every day, mostly about sex. So it's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I actually found your blog way, way back um, when I would say probably, I don't know, 10 years ago um, and always, always enjoyed reading it. Um, so that was another reason I really loved reading this book because um, your your authorial voice is already so familiar to me. So it felt like talking to somebody I already knew. Um, <laughs> thank you so much um, for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. And um, we really appreciate the work you guys are doing. It's so necessary. Um, and uh, thank you so much for coming. Well, thanks for having me. It's been great.